Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the dough, where cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Today, I am unveiling a national strategy on COVID-19 and executive actions to beat this pandemic. This plan reflects uh, the ideas I set forward during the campaign and uh, further refined over the past three months. It consists of uh, my transitions teams, the task force, Tony Fauci and the team here today and other experts put this plan together. Our national strategy is comprehensive. It's based on science, not politics. It's based on truth, not denial. And it's detail. Welcome to In the Bubble from the Frontlines. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Wachter. Well, you just heard President Joe Biden. That actually has a nice ring to it. President Joe Biden speaking the day after inauguration about uh, his administration's COVID response. One of the things that's remarkable about it, first of all, is that it's normal and it's science and evidence-based, but also how comprehensive it is. There are parts of it that deal with masking and testing and tracking the numbers and contact tracing and the vaccine rollout and the vaccine supply and support for the public health system and for people whose lives have been displaced uh, by COVID. It's impressive And it's comprehensive. But I have to say what is most impressed by uh, watching the first few days of the Biden administration as it as it pertains to covid is the tone. It is the first time in a year in which I feel like we're being treated like adults. We're hearing the truth. It's unvarnished. It's not sugarcoated and it's not distorted by being processed through a political filter. And that, of course, is the way it should be. It's the way it should have been. But it's uh, nice to see that rolling out sort of forgot what that looks like. Uh, We're also hearing not only what the government will do, but also what we all need to do. And we're hearing what may happen, including the good news, uh, but not all happy talk, some of the bad news that we're all experiencing now. And these variants really are are worrisome, and we've got to take it seriously. So it just felt normal. I felt giddiness uh, watching Tony Fauci and his press conference the other day. It's just that feeling you have. It kind of felt like the way I felt the first time I tasted Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It was just like, wow, this is so good and feels so good. And uh, it was it was really fun watching Fauci give that press conference. It just felt like he'd been let out after being under house arrest for a year. Well, our new president has made a number of superb personnel choices uh, because I know Andy is listening to this. I have to mention that Slavit character. But Also, one of the ways I knew things would be okay was when he selected the members of his COVID task force. It was an all-star team that was looking at uh, COVID from a lot of different angles. But one of the members of the COVID task force was the most thoughtful person I know in all of healthcare. And that's the person that we're lucky to hear from today. And that's Atul Gawande. Uh, You probably know Atul, so I'll be brief about his bio. He's a surgeon, uh, an author, a public health leader, and a friend. He's a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and a professor at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Uh, He's also the founder and chair of Ariadne Labs, which is a health innovation center that he started several years ago uh, at Harvard. 
He's also a little bit of a writer. You may have read some of his things. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of four best-selling books, uh, including Complications, Being Mortal, and The Checklist Manifesto. As a uh, dabbling physician author myself, I can tell you that all of us aspire to achieve Atul's level of clarity, insight, and humanity that's uh, suffused through everything he writes, whether it's in The New Yorker or in one of his books. And if you haven't read his books, I'd recommend you go out and do that. So every time I have a chance to speak to a tool, I learn a ton, and uh, and today is no exception. So uh, thrilled that he's on, and uh, let's go ahead and call up Atul Gawande. Well, Atul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Delighted to be here, Bob. This sounds like a nice new uh, fun gig. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing opportunity to talk to the people I, I idolize about uh, how they're thinking about probably the most important issue in the world. So that, that's an embarrassing way to start, Bob. But OK, yeah. <laughs> you know, for two friends. But it, it <laughs> happens to be true. You, for the last couple of months, you had an interesting role as being on the advisory uh, board for up to that point, president-elect and then president. So Tell us what you can share about what it was like on the inside, and were there uh, was there a lot of consensus, or were there some controversial issues that you had to work your way through? Well, first of all, um, there were 13 people on the advisory board, including the three co-chairs, and it was an amazing group of people with expertise in a wider range than I've ever had around the table, from Native American affairs to immunology to production of masks, you know, like it was, it was a great group of people. And then it turned out the, the further surprise was it was really backed up by an equally fabulous range of people on who are already on the transition team that people didn't really know about, like Caitlin Rivers, who's an expert in her own right from Johns Hopkins. And, you know, the woman who had run the Obama pandemic response task force that had been disbanded by Trump. So, you know, they brought a tremendous amount of expertise to the table. Um, second thing that was, you know, sort of unexpected, but totally mundane is just how sensible and rational it was. You'd have a meeting could be with the president elect and vice president elect. It could be with people making decisions in the transition. And basically the meetings would start with here are the issues. Here's the background and the facts. We'd put forward some recommendations. There'd be questions, sensible questions. <laughs> Sounds normal. <laughs> and, and then and then there'd be a decision. And then people would stick with that decision, even days and, and even weeks later. And that's just such a bomb for my soul after these many years. You just got so used to the idea that that wasn't possible. And I, I hadn't even... A, Appreciated it. Let me just make clear a tool B B A L M bomb as opposed bomb, to yes. yeah, a bomb yeah a bomb for my for your soul. soul got it yeah and so that was um, that was fantastic and then you know every issue we would work our way through uh, would invariably have different points of view and we would wrestle with it and sometimes simply report it out we were not the decision makers the aim was that where we could or when requested we were taking the very broad stroke plan and trying to support the transition team's effort to turn it into an actual implementation plan, what became the 200-page Biden National Strategic Plan for the coronavirus. And it was it was amazing to see the, as much of those conversations turn up in the strategy as did. How different was the process than it might have been? This is hard to sort of almost envision this world. But let's say you were taking over from an administration that was a normal administration that handled COVID in what we would have thought of as a, a rational way. How different do you think the process of planning would have been? Well, I think the only comparison I can make was I was on the transition team for the Clinton-Gore transition in 1992. And there was cooperation with the Bush administration. We had regular review sessions with those teams from day one. Um, we went in understanding exactly uh, what issues were up in the air, what weren't up in the air. We didn't have trouble getting non-public information. And effectively, what I observed in the transition was that access to non-public information was extremely hard to get. And you also had the problem that you couldn't staff up. So during that transition, 
You had hearings underway with major cabinet officials, uh, and if I remember correctly, the HHS secretary having hearings. And so, you know, we hit the ground running. I ended up working on Donna Shalala's team at that time. And by comparison, I think almost no hearings got started because you couldn't even acknowledge the possibility that Biden would be president. Uh, and so even without a crisis, it was a deeply flawed transition of power because of the belief that you couldn't acknowledge there was going to be a transition of power. Yeah. There was part of it that was that in terms of the quality of the handoff. And there was a part of it that you had to rectify a whole bunch of things. And it wasn't exactly continuing on the path, but in some ways, uh, creating 180 degree departure from the path. And I imagine that that involves some different different work than it would have been if things had been going, you know, had been on the rails. I think it's inevitable. Certainly, we experienced it back in the transition from Bush to Clinton that there was going to be very deep differences of opinion about policy and that that wasn't necessarily going to be that compatible. Now, we don't normally think that in matters of public health, there are those kinds of debates. But when the entire economy is hanging by a thread and there's plenty of blame to go around, that's bound to have some challenge in making the the turnover. I, I really think that would have seemed normal to me, that there would have been uh, some conflict over those, those kinds of issues. Uh, less that just, you know, getting access to information about what the status was of vaccine production and what the contracts look like and what what was the team going to run into on day one. And then add to it that after January 6th, many appointees left. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was no one there to even talk to to get information uh, for an extended period. We won't go through the plan in, in, in great detail, but what do you think are the highlights of the plan that came out of this work? What, what are the sort of top issues that you thought the plan addressed? Well, number one was recognizing that it had to be comprehensive. We went from a plan to the extent there was any plan, it boiled down to saying, we're going to really make sure there's vaccines in production and tested and uh, all breakthrough, no follow through, very little planning around all of the other elements required, scaling testing, scaling vaccines, scaling masks and the supply chain, uh, messaging, you name it. And so the comprehensiveness of the plan to include everything from those items to rebuilding trust to rebuilding global leadership are fundamental. This is genuinely putting our country on a war footing against a virus, an enemy that has attacked this country and laid waste to our people, to our jobs, to our, uh, even to, you know, schooling and education. So, you know, you, you look through it and it is a incredibly ambitious, stunning document, but only commensurate with the scale of the crisis and taking that seriously. Let me ask you about one particular piece of data that came out of the in the report and in the subsequent discussions, which is the 100 million doses in the first 100 days. And you talk about ambitious. That's a number that's being batted around. Obviously, it's a round number. It's easy to remember. But one can imagine or one can look at it and say it's not ambitious enough. On the other hand, it's it's a number that's realistic and we want to reach any any target that we set. So can you take us through a little bit about the discussion around, uh, I don't know if that 100 million came out of your committee, but the discussion around uh, setting a number and and why that number? It didn't come out of our committee, uh, our advisory board, um, but I think it reflected actually the president's own thinking and we fully endorsed it. You know, the discussion after the inauguration has been sort of fascinating, both in, in that people are uh, criticizing it as potentially not ambitious enough and then other times as being too ambitious. Here's what I see. We are nearing a million vaccines uh, being able to deliver per day, and we're hitting severe production shortages that imperil those very uh, goals. Um, for the longest time, uh, we, we, it wasn't clear we could get the administration infrastructure up and going, and it's still missing in major parts of the country. Um, and so that's a big problem. But now you have, I mean, just this week, um, we have situation where Pfizer told Canada they would get zero doses of vaccine this week and that they are cutting Europe's supply somewhere along 
uh, 50%. You have AstraZeneca reporting that their supply is uh, going to be a couple months behind. You know, those supply issues are not small matters. There are great areas of unpredictability, and it may yet get solved um, because maybe there'll be a Johnson & Johnson vaccine that gets announced with results in the next few days. But right now, I am concerned that the 100 million is still an ambitious goal when I wish it was really easy. Mm -hmm. um, the companies have said that they'll follow through on their contracts, but their contracts are about how many they'll deliver by June. If they're delayed by a couple months, that doesn't mean anything to their contracts, but it make, means a great deal to us as a country, especially while these new mutant strains are, are circulating. There. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. things that has struck me as I look back on the past year is uh, how right the Trump administration got the vaccine development process in a sea of things that, to me, they got wrong. Uh, first of all, do you have that take? And second of all, what do you think was exceptional about that one process? Or was this just a blind squirrel and they happened to stumble into something that they got right? I think that the career scientists in the government are phenomenal. <laughs> there are some amazing and phenomenal people. And if you cut them loose, they have important ideas. This was Peter Marks and Rick Bright, Peter Marks at FDA and Rick Bright at BARDA, identifying that they needed to cut through all of the bureaucracy, pull all of the agencies together and put the country on a war footing to, uh, on warp speed to enable, um, the production and, and clinical testing of these vaccines. And what's remarkable was that they were able to win the support of the White House for not getting in the way. And then they were left alone and that allowed it to be successful. There was interference in just about every other component of the process. And then when the White House did get involved, it nearly destroyed the credibility of the whole effort by threatening to say that the trial structures could be ignored, that the safety um, measures didn't need to be in place before FDA needed to approve. They just about stepped on the one thing that had gone right by getting involved. You know, as soon as President Trump, after the election, stepped away from this issue to attacking every form of voting, the absence of his voice on these issues started to allow people to work together. You saw all but a little over a dozen states actually getting mask mandates in place and, and supporting implementation of masks, even in the places that didn't have the mandates. You saw testing be able to grow uh, as states and cities and counties got it moving and weren't being opposed by the rhetoric of the White House. What do you think the future prospects of vaccines will be vis-a-vis -vis partisanship? Do you think vaccines are the masks of 2021 that eventually you'll have one camp and the other camp on either side? Or do you think because it was developed under the Trump administration and they've taken some, I think, appropriate pride in that process that it stays relatively unpartisan? 
Well, you've hit, I think, the key thing, but I put it in a slightly different way, which is we failed to come together as a country on any strategy. We did not come together on being able to agree on masks. We did not come together to agree on and deploy testing. We have come together every state and agreed that we want to deploy vaccines. And it doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat, we are together. We're all clamoring <laughs> to get vaccine production. You know, the states that are doing great at administration, you know, they include North Dakota and South Dakota and uh, Wyoming and West Virginia pushing uh, vaccine out. And you have a lot of blue states struggling, many of them because of their size and some of them for more bureaucratic reasons. And I think there will be some political tension over distribution. The different states are taking different approaches and willingness to recognize the underserved communities and essential workers and making sure that undocumented people are getting vaccines versus not. So there's some flavors of the cultural divide that is coming into there. But the overall commitment to getting everybody vaccinated, I think, is is strong and will remain that way. Um, I think around the edges will determine whether it ends up being, you know, 70 percent getting vaccinated versus 90 percent being vaccinated. But I think we're committed to rolling this thing out. Yeah, but I wonder about the edges in that that there is the process of distribution and supply and, and logistics. And there is that decision that an individual is making about whether to take a shot. And that decision may be colored by misinformation or disinformation, may be colored by the state is saying, I need to do this. And therefore, my libertarian tendencies jump up and say, I don't want that. Uh, Particularly, I can imagine in a world where we start seeing immunity passports and people, you know, feeling that they're being coerced to do it in one way or the other. So sort of independent of, I, I agree with you about the states, but in the that final decision by 250 or 300 million individuals, do I take this vaccine or not? Do you think it will stay relatively nonpartisan or do you worry about it descending into a mask-like debate? Well, there's a couple things. One is that there's bound, we have to separate the large number of people who have anxiety about the vaccines because they haven't seen other people, enough other people get through it to satisfy their fear of side effects or complications or ineffectiveness. Um, and as the vaccine rolls out and as millions of people now are showing minimal side effects, the confidence is growing for those who had been on the fence to jump to the other side and, and get the shot. There is an, a concerted campaign that falls into a couple of flavors. One is the anti-vax um, contingent who are against, who have campaigned against vaccines of all kinds, who are making allegations that I, I don't even want to repeat them because they're crazy, but, um, <laughs> there's that kind of conspiratorial component and the anti-vax component that are just going to be there and you just have to keep working against. But those have never been at the 30% level. And I think, you know, we're continuing to make progress in ensuring that doesn't turn out to be the case. What would change that is having a president who endorses those beliefs. And that kind of disinformation, pseudoscience, and craziness coming from the White House is what did so much public health damage over the last year. Yeah. I think there will be a fierce debate if vaccines move from merely emergency authorization, but still experimental to, you know, being formally approved and then starting to see that people are either getting privileges because they have the vaccination or are required for certain jobs to have um, the vaccination. I think a lot depends on science that still hasn't come out yet. Um, so far, the main reason to get vaccination is protect yourself. And it's not clear that it stops transmission to others. Um, but if, as I suspect it will, if evidence in the next couple of months emerges indicating it also stops transmission to others, then these considerations will be fiercely debated. When I told some friends that I was going to get a chance to talk to you, uh, folks who think that you're really wise in helping 
folks think through complex problems. A lot of them said, ask him about schools, <laughs> which strikes me as one of the most wickedly complex problems here where, you know, I, I, there were no two sides of the debate about masks and not really two sides on, on vaccines, but schools really are hard. How do you think about schools? I've thrown myself in with them, actually. Um, so part of what I've been doing in the last six, seven months since um, I left being CEO at Haven was to launch uh, an effort where we've put together partners, including launching a company to enable all the operations and logistics for large-scale testing and now large-scale vaccination. And one of the components has been, we were just announced as a um, as part of the state's effort to bring testing to all the schools in Massachusetts, um, pooled testing to deploy um, across the state. My view on this, I see it the same way that I do hospitals, in that if you can maintain good adherence and control around wearing masks, social distancing, and screening for symptoms so that people coming in you, you, you test the subset of people who get symptoms. That has worked very well. Um, you'll remember when I wrote about that last March, and even your hospital uh, was not happy with me that I thought that that needed to be the formula, that we needed to have universal masking of the patients and of the staff and drive that out. And it worked. That worked. It kept our hospitals from being the sources of outbreak that they were in Italy and in Spain and in the beginning in Wuhan. And I think in schools that when you can maintain that kind of control, that you can demonstrate that control environment, that it works well. But we've seen good evidence that there are circumstances where that doesn't work. One circumstance is when the community level of virus is high. Even with those measures in place, the levels can be so high that it, that it becomes a source of transmission to teachers and to uh, people back home for the kids. And second is when you can't actually win the kids over to following the rules. And in certain school environments, you just can't. And that's clearly demonstrated. So um, I think that where we've reached is also where you have to think about what the staff requires for confidence to come back into the school environment as well. And deploying testing is an important available tool for doing that. We should gear up drive it out to scale, and it's eminently feasible. And it's it's so important to get the kids back in school for their sake. It also reduces the burden uh, for family members returning to work. And it's also just healthier for all of society. Sure. Um, so my take on it is we can get back to school. We can deploy testing. Pooled testing and other kinds of testing are feasible ways to do it. And I think we can move forward. And, you know, is it required everywhere. I think where counts are low, I call, you know, where you're in the green zone or sometimes even in the yellow zone, you can safely get back to school with masks and other measures. If we can get the teachers all vaccinated, then, you know, we may yet find we have more confidence about doing it without testing in some environments. With as much virus as we have circulating now, I think we have to be ready to, to have widespread testing. Mm hmm I saw you retweeted something that uh, I guess Randy Weingarten had written that the, the teachers have been a source of opposition to opening the schools in some places. Where, where do you think they land on this now? Um, I think that doing a better job of asking and bringing them to the table. I have been working in doing testing in schools for months now, and we've been able to win people over to, to getting there by respecting what the teachers have to say, what their concerns are, and listening to the reality of, yes, in many schools, they'll wear the masks and do that stuff. But in other schools, they're faced with kids who just, they don't have the control over the classroom and the norms mm -hmm. in the ways that, you know, we like to imagine that they might. And that with their leaders, they are supportive of uh, deploying testing and, and having that be a source of assurance and confidence that, you know, when coupled with a good tracing program, can keep the school from becoming the source of infection. Maybe one or two more questions on 
COVID and then I want to sort of move out to bigger picture issues in healthcare. It strikes me that we find ourselves in a pretty happy moment now. Obviously, it's a lot of people sick and a lot of people dying still, but the curves are all getting better. We have a new administration in that believes in science and is has competent people involved. The vaccines are rolling out. And then you have this, as COVID seems to like to do, you have this curveball of the variants. How are you processing that? I'm scared. I'm not feeling happy. <laughs> I am very concerned. Brazil and South Africa honestly scare the shit out of me. <laughs> uh, now, the good news, Israel has gotten to high levels of immunization, and, and they are somewhere around a third of the country has the UK variant, and the vaccine is working against the UK variant. It's also clear that the vaccines are weaker, it seems, that Moderna is reporting. The vaccine is weaker, uh, but still effective against the South African variant. And the Brazilian variant is very related to the South African variant. And in Brazil, seeing uh, Manaus go from having been overrun by virus and gotten to very high levels of exposure now going through another surge where the public hospitals are overrun and running out of oxygen and people being reinfected is deeply concerning. Are these solvable? Absolutely. Absolutely. The solutions are the ones we haven't followed so far, <laughs> which is we need to, um, we need to wear our masks. We need to, uh, I, I've argued now that given the high increased contagion from these strains, that uh, the, the increased infectiveness, um, that we really ought to have, the CDC ought to be making a full evaluation of the literature. My read on it is that the literature supports the idea that single layer masks, which is what most people use, single layer cloth masks, are effective, but not as effective as medical grade masks, surgical masks, the KN95 and the N95, and that the general public ought to be switching to the medical masks and that that will make a big difference. Masks are a still underused, very powerful tool. When we got American mask usage up above 85%, we have seen the hospitalizations and cases drop tremendously. And that's been a big driver, the main driver of getting, uh, getting the rates down across this country. As the new variants climb, in order to avoid that next surge, and once again, even more hospitals getting into trouble, um, I think the masks are a big part of it. I think the other thing is we have not, this is like, this is just like January of last year. We once again don't have testing. Mm -hmm. We don't have the sequencing to know where are these variants. I suspect the Brazilian variant is already here, if not also the South African variant. And we need to know where it is and to make sure we have containment measures around the places where they are, if it hasn't already become widespread. Um, I was glad to hear that Moderna and hopefully Pfizer will follow suit is already moving to develop a multivalent vaccine, meaning the mRNA constructs that would allow for coverage of the South African and Brazilian variant. And there is a need for a much speedier process so that as these variants come up that we're not only sequencing and knowing what they are, but then very rapidly working with the NIH to assess the effectiveness with the vaccines so that it doesn't take six to eight weeks to know if these might be evading the vaccine antibody response. I think all of this could get us to the place where come March, we're not looking at another massive hit like the UK has experienced and Europe is experiencing. But I think it depends on whether we can follow through on these steps. Mm -hmm. It feels like we're in a different kind of race now over the next few months. And the speed of vaccination becomes increasingly important, as does the, the masking. You know, I live in San Francisco where people have been awfully good at masking. And we have uh, still not hit 300 deaths in a city of uh, 800,000 people since the start of this. And if the country matched our per capita death rate, it would be at 100,000, not 400,000. So it, you know, it works. And uh, it's important to remind people that uh, that vaccines are part of the answer, but the other behaviors are critical. Couldn't agree more. Hey, listeners, if you haven't heard, you can now show your support for In the Bubble 
and meet other cool In the Bubble listeners with your very own In the Bubble t-shirt, mug, and baseball cap. Get all three, head to our merch store at lemonademedia.com slash shop to pick up yours today. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com slash survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. Let's switch to some bigger picture issues. I, I just can't not have have you on the other end and not not probe your thinking about some of these. So uh, let's talk about the healthcare system. What has the last year taught you about the healthcare system that you didn't know before? I feel like it has mainly demonstrated things that I've been talking about for a long time, which is that we have a system that's all breakthrough and no follow through. I've written about at some length the fact that we can't, you know, for what is now the country's number one killer, which is high blood pressure, we are under 50% being recognized to have high blood pressure and getting it under control. Now, why are we surprised that we then don't have a system that is able to recognize if you have the coronavirus and institute some simple cheap remedies to protect you? You know, we have a country where a third of the counties do not have an obstetrics unit, um, do not have an, ob- you know, an OBGYN. And we don't have any system in place to track, you know, which places are doing better and which places are doing worse. We're even worse for inpatient psychiatry beds. Uh, and we don't have any means to fill the gap. I think the surprise to me that came out of it is that the entire country could recognize and learn, the entire medical establishment especially, that public health is vitally important to solving those problems. You can't starve that tool of monitoring where the gaps are in the population and having the glue that public health agencies and local city offices and county offices contribute to make sure that you actually can solve goals at the whole population level. Hospitals make sure that anybody who walks in the door are taken care of, but they're not good at making sure that the neighborhood they're in is actually getting the right care, let alone the city and the county. And we spend north of $11,000 per person on the acute medical care system while uh, it's 56 bucks per person per capita on the public health components. And I think it's not a surprise that that part has been starved and then uh, in a crisis has not worked. What is a surprise and what's cool <laughs> is that everybody in healthcare have recognized and gotten to know their public health people and how important a contribution they are making. The public health people have come to recognize they can't ignore the healthcare delivery system. They have to interact with all of those components. And, you know, we still to this day can't, um, we don't have a good system for saying how many places have run out of masks, how many places don't have enough ventilator capacity. That can't be acceptable two, three years from now. That will have to be the integration of public health, primary care, and health care at a broader level, I think is going to be one of the lasting consequences of this pandemic. So that's a great segue to healthcare transformation in your last few years uh, that you spent with a, a startup, a reasonably well-funded startup <laughs> funded by Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan, uh, whose goal was never quite clear to any of us, but we sort of assumed it would be, it would be great because you were running it and, and there was unlimited resources behind it. And uh, of course, you left the leadership role last year, and they just announced recently that they're they're taking it down. So, what were you trying to do, and what are the lessons? 
Yeah, I think what we were trying to do, it was actually never um, that mysterious. It was uh, to optimize the outcome per dollar for their population of a little over a million and a half now, <laughs> close to 2 million workers in the pandemic. And so the, you know, here you had three companies who had taken seriously that um, the second biggest item on their balance sheet was their healthcare costs and wanting to address them in a long-term way. So first of all, we got to try a bunch of really cool and interesting things. I built a new health plan that rolled out with almost 150,000 people that has no coinsurance, uh, no deductibles, just copays, and favored primary care and mental health care to be as little as $25 a visit, in some case $15 a visit, and could deploy it and maintain the costs to be, you know, basically no added cost for, for setting up and were, and were very popular. What was clear and interesting was that implementation is local (laughs) and that, uh, deploying all of it in some totally centralized way was not going to be viable, uh, for being able to make that work. And so a lot of the stuff that we drove out ended up being implemented, uh, by these companies. And I think they'll continue to build off of many of the ideas that we deployed, uh, now. Uh, the reason the stock market took a dive when this got announced was the prospect that these three companies would disrupt the entire system, right, and fix it all. And what's really clear as well is that some of that expectation was way too high because there are certain things that the employer-based system can't fix. And a really fundamental one is that it still remains, and I've said before I took the job, while I was in the job and after I was uh, out of uh, running it and it dissolved, that um, it was a fundamental mistake to tie our healthcare as Americans to where we work. We are in and out of our workplace now in two to three years very often. That's a very typical turnover. And having your healthcare change, the design of your benefits change and everything else is just totally contrary to, to all the discoveries we're making about how to improve people's lives and, and improve their medical care. So some basic things like I talked about high blood pressure, addressing it will save money and will save, certainly save lives, but it takes three to five years to see that accrual. And then you take genomics and, and the prospects of what it can bring. And its benefit is 15, 20, sometimes 50 years down the road. And uh, the investments required are really life course investments. And so, you know, the pandemic only made even more clear there's a certain amount that health plans and, and insurers and employers can do. And there's a lot that you really need the public health system and the healthcare, the larger healthcare delivery system and government to play an important role in solving. You've written about a lot of weighty topics, but probably no more so than uh, about death and the process of death in the world. I can't think of an event like this, certainly in our lifetimes, of this death at this scale and death in a sort of strange way, isolating, isolated from friends and family. Uh, What have you learned about death, the way we handle death, the way we process death from watching COVID over the past year? Um, I'll say the thing that I feel like I learned is how fragile our progress in improving care at the end of life has been. The fundamental thing that I got to write about in, in my book, Being Mortal, was exploring why I, I wasn't that effective in addressing issues that were unfixable with people and, and knowing how to make decisions with them. And the fundamental discovery was a kind of <laughs> so it's so simplistic. It seems duh. Like, why do I need a whole book to figure this out? Um, but the core of it was that people have goals in their life. They have priorities besides just living longer, that those priorities are different from person to person and change over time. The most effective way to learn what people's priorities are is to ask them. And we don't ask. When we don't ask, there is suffering. And what we saw was the extreme degree of suffering that happens when we make only surviving this pandemic, the sole priority to guide the care of people who are extremely vulnerable. Um, And that has left people in solitary confinement in many cases for months on end, the uh, no visitation from families, et cetera. 
that was fine for the first couple of months where we just had to figure out what worked and what didn't work. We didn't know what masks work, what gowns work, like what the heck was going on here. But once we did, the idea that we wouldn't provide gowns, you know, I had a, I had a relative of mine with Alzheimer's admitted to a hospital around that time. And we had figured out, you know, that masks work and gowns work. And because of the potential for shortages, a family member wasn't allowed to come visit. And here was someone who's supremely disoriented and, and, and becoming more and more agitated and unable to care for themselves. You know, we made an exception that for a parent with a pediatric patient that they could gown up and be present and, and pod with them because we recognized they needed that for their sanity. Well, well, a lot of people do. A lot of people do. I just read the most beautiful manuscript from a colleague at Vanderbilt where they'd had two instances of married couple of a married couple who became infected with COVID and both needed high level care in one case, ICU level care for both. And they moved heaven and earth to put them in the same room, even as they were on high flow oxygen, so they could hold hands as they got through it. And, uh, you know, just the loss of the humanity in what we were doing and the way that we accepted it in medicine, it troubles me greatly. And we are working our way out of it, but we could have done more and we, we need to be doing more. So maybe last question, as you've processed this past year, and I think we're all processing it as we go along, what aspects of it make you hopeful in terms of what we've learned? And I, I, not just the medical part, not just COVID, but also the political context and the racial context. We've just seen so much change coming at us so fast, uh, so many so many surprises. Uh, as you sort of take it all in and think about the future, what is, what's your take on it? Are there parts of it that you're hopeful about? Well, I have to start with what I was depressed to see how easy it was to break our ties enough to not pull together in the same direction to work our way out of it. And what gives me hope is that that those threads have not been torn irrevocably. You simply can't get anything done if we can't come together around certain priorities. There will always be people who will disagree with those priorities, but where most of the country and 80% of the country wants to fight this virus. All the polls have indicated that all along. And we've seen, whether it's climate change or guns or other things, we have very high proportions of people who want to do sensible things and pull in the same direction. But it's always been possible for disruptive minorities to, um, to sever those ties. And so what gives me hope is that it's really nothing about public health or about science. It's that we've learned that we all are responsible and have to speak up and have to go vote and we have to go push and we have to um, work our way through the conflict. There is bound to be conflict. We have shied away from the conflict and having those arguments, sometimes fierce and, and mobilizing ourselves to do what's necessary to come together and, and make the basics happen, whether it's pushing for masks, whether it's um, being able to get people out and voting, uh, whether it's now um, getting the messaging right on vaccines, we're all in it. And if, and if you're on the sidelines, it doesn't, we can't get there. And so w what gives me hope is that that sense of engagement and deep involvement that we're seeing emerge from all of this. Atul, thank you so much. Thank you for your leadership. And thank you for what you always do uh, better than ever, anybody I know, which is make sense of really complicated situations and do it with clarity and, uh, and real empathy. So uh, I'm grateful to you for that and really grateful for uh, spending this time with us. Well, you're awesome, Bob. Thank you for uh, everything you've been doing to keep all of us informed in the same way. Well, what a pleasure hearing from Atul Gawande. I, uh, every time I, I listen to Atul, I learn something because you just know he's thinking deeply about the issues. He's talking to other people to help educate him. And one of the most amazing things about Atul is uh, he has every right to be arrogant, and yet there's not an arrogant bone in his body. He's humble, and that I think is part of 
why he's so effective, because he's constantly learning and constantly able to say, I know a lot about this and and this thing I don't know that much about and I need to learn more. So that was a real pleasure and I, I hope you enjoyed it as well. We have some other fantastic shows coming up on In the Bubble. Um, next week, we have Julie Gerberding. Julie is a twofer in that she ran the CDC for a number of years and also ran vaccine development for Merck. So she is looking at our current state through those two lenses, and I think will uh, will teach us a lot about the current state of both vaccines and of the CDC. Coming up after that, we'll have Don Berwick, Don, really the international leader, in many ways, the founding father of the fields of healthcare quality and safety, also a former director of uh, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. We'll have Julia Marcus. Uh, Julia is a professor at Harvard who is kind of more thoughtful about the issues of behavioral change in COVID and how how people respond to the recommendations and directives to change their behavior and be safe. Julia has studied that uh, more intensively than anybody I know, uh, learning about it and thinking about it in the context of HIV, but like many people, has brought that knowledge and wisdom to COVID over the past year. We'll also get our first report from uh, Lana Slavitt, Andy's wife, who will give us an Andy report. Hopefully there's been an Andy sighting and uh, she's in touch with him and we can hear what's happening on the inside of the Biden administration as they roll out their approach to COVID. So far, it's been very impressive, uh, but we'll hear the inside story and how Andy's doing. So uh, lots of great stuff coming up. Uh, Please join us for all of that. And until then, uh, please be safe. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Chrissy Pease and Alex McGowan produced our show. Our mix is by Ivan Kuryev. Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax executive produced the show. Our theme was composed by Dan Molad and Oliver Hill and additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at In The Bubble Pod. Until next time, stay safe and stay sane. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast, Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way, through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah, as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts.